Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to tonight's uh, event. Tonight's event is the result of collaboration between various parts of the school, the European Institute, which I have the pleasure of uh, heading, the Institute for Public Affairs, and the Darendorf Programme, uh, which is currently focusing on the future of Europe. Now, we've been fortunate at the LSE to uh, host a number of speakers on Brexit this academic year, uh, covering different opinions, different disciplines, different perspectives, etc. Uh, last autumn, we had the pleasure of uh, welcoming Guy Verhofstadt from the European Parliament, the Parliament's lead on Brexit, to talk about how the Parliament might view the Brexit deal. But tonight, we switch our focus to the European uh, Commission and to the actual negotiations uh, underway. We're pleased, of course, to welcome Dr. Stefan Dirink. Stefan has a PhD from the European University Institute in Florence uh, and has worked for the European Commission now for a number of years uh, in different uh, roles. But, of course, you're here tonight because he's senior advisor to Michel Barnier, the chief European Union negotiator on Brexit. And as such, Stefan is at the very heart of the Commission's discussions about the Brexit uh, negotiations. And I guess uh, tonight's uh, discussion could hardly be better timed. Uh, it follows the speech of the Prime Minister, Theresa May, last Friday, the speech of Jeremy Corbyn a few days before that, and we've had the benefits of a number of Cabinet Ministers uh, intervening to say how they see the future of the UK after, uh, after Brexit. Now, Stefan will uh, tell us how the Commission views the progress uh, to, uh, to date. Uh, his title is indeed The Brexit Negotiations, The View from uh, Brussels. Uh, and we've asked him to speak for about 30 minutes. Uh, we've agreed that I'll then follow with uh, a few questions in response to what he's uh, said. And then we'll open up to Q&A with you, the uh, audience. You can make your comments as the discussion proceeds on Twitter. And you can see on the screen behind us here uh, the hashtag, uh, hashtag LSE Public Events. Um, we'd be delighted to uh, receive your comments. Uh, indeed, LSE Brexit uh, up here. Um, for those of you more savvy with Twitter than the person <laughs> speaking to you at the moment, uh, I speak to you with all of the authority of someone who's not even on Twitter. <laughs> and I imagine I'm someone who's never been invited to join Twitter, uh, neither. Uh, so those of you uh, more 21st century than me can follow uh, and we look forward to your comments as the conversations uh, progress. Can I ask you so that we uh, can follow the discussion more easily, uh, that you switch your mobile phones to, to silent? And uh, let's uh, now begin. Can you please join me in giving a warm welcome to the LSE for our speaker tonight, Stefan de Rink. Thank you, Professor Featherstone. Thank you also to the London School of Economics and Political Science for inviting me here. It's truly an honor and a privilege to talk at the LSE on the topic of the UK's withdrawal and the state of play of the negotiations. Now, it would certainly have been 
an even greater pleasure to give a talk on the future of Europe with the UK being part of it. But the referendum of June 2016 has decided differently. Brexit is a decision taken by the UK in full sovereignty, which we will continue to respect and execute. Since the Treaty of Lisbon, the EU indeed foresees the possibility of an Article 50 which allows a member state to declare its intention to withdraw and to withdraw from the European Union. And our loyalty as EU institutions is first and foremost to those treaties. And so I know that the UK withdrawal disappoints some or many in the UK and perhaps some or many in this room here in the centre of London. And some may perhaps see the EU as a natural ally of a cause for remain, which remains a vivid debate in this country, but the EU is foremost a community based on law and on the treaties. And our role as negotiation team in the European Commission and of Michel Barnier as chief negotiator on behalf of the EU27 is indeed to organize that withdrawal of the UK from the European Union in an orderly fashion and to design a framework for the future relationship. So in my introductory remarks, I would like to touch on each of the three main work streams that we are working on today, notably the withdrawal agreement, the issue of the transitional arrangements, and the issue of the future relationship. We in the Commission have a fourth work stream on preparedness of public administrations, business and other actors for any eventuality of a UK withdrawal with or without a deal, but that is a work stream that I will not touch upon in my introductory remarks. So let's come first to the first part, which is that draft text of the withdrawal agreement, which the negotiation team and the European Commission last week put in the public domain. And we presented that text to the member states, and so at this stage is a text for the 27 member states to review and consider and have an exchange of views with us. And that text contains the issue of citizens' rights, Ireland, Northern Ireland, and the agreement on the financial settlement, what some refer to here as the Brexit Bill, following our joint EU-UK commitments in December. It also deals with a number of other issues that we haven't finished yet, so-called disentanglement issues, issues that need to be sorted out in terms of the UK's withdrawal, such as regulatory matters, what happens with goods placed on the market? What happens with Euratom, which is part of what the UK is withdrawing from? What happens with judicial and commercial rulings and the automatic recognition of court rulings underway, important for commercial court rulings here in London, to name but a few? It contains the terms of a transitional arrangement as well as institutional provisions for that withdrawal agreement on dispute settlement and enforcement of that withdrawal agreement. And when one reads that text, and when I first read the text, the reality of Brexit really sinks in. And you can see there's so many implications that the UK's withdrawal from the European Union entails. And it brings home what Michel Barnier has said many times, that Brexit has consequences social consequences, financial, human, economic, institutional, and others. 
Now, you'll be pleased to know if you're an LSE student that from abroad, since you're a global university in this already global country, that your rights are protected in the sense that if you stay and study here, you can change status and find a job here. So that's one of the examples of the issues that we have agreed with, with the UK in our December joint agreements. But let me perhaps elaborate on Ireland and Northern Ireland, because that is the issue that most public attention was drawn to in this country. And that is only natural given the political sensitivity of the issue of Ireland and Northern Ireland and how Brexit impacts that particular challenge there. And I would like to first recall, given some of the impact that I have seen in the public debate here, a number of issues that happened in December before we come to the possible solutions for Ireland and Northern Ireland. In December, there was a joint commitment from the EU and the UK to protect the Good Friday Agreement in all its dimensions which was again confirmed by Prime Minister May in her Mansion House speech, also by Secretary of State David Davis earlier. And the Prime Minister said that the UK should be proud of that historic achievement of peace. The UK also said in December that it would respect all of Ireland's obligations as an EU member, which touches upon the issue of single market integrity. And also that it would preserve, that the UK will preserve the integrity of Northern Ireland's place within the UK internal market. There was an agreement, importantly, that the joint EU-UK commitments of the December report would be upheld in all circumstances, irrespective of what the future relationship will bring. Both parties also recognized that the existing North-South cooperation in Ireland under the Good Friday Agreement relies significantly on the EU legal and policy framework. And there was a joint commitment for avoiding a hard border, as put forward already by the European Council's guidelines in April 2017. And last Friday, Prime Minister May repeated that the UK rules out a hard border. She spoke about the absence of physical infrastructure and the absence of related checks and controls. And what was certainly also very welcome in the Mansion House speech last Friday is that Prime Minister May rejected this fantasy that one could sometimes hear from a number of what is called Brexiteers in this country, that it is the EU and not the UK that is asking for a border. Global Britain needs a border to be a secure, reliable WTO partner, to have preferential trade deals with other countries in the world. One needs a border. That goes without saying the whole Brexit dimension is also taking back control of laws, money, and borders. That drives also the, the, the UK's decision to withdraw. The Prime Minister also clearly indicated that the UK has a responsibility to find a solution for the problem which is caused by the UK's withdrawal on the island of Ireland. So in terms of the draft withdrawal agreement, what we have done last week is operationalize one of the three solutions that is outlined in the joint EU-UK report from December. And that is the option of full alignment of Northern Ireland with current and future rules of, that are of importance for the all-island economy, for the Good Friday Agreement, and for the North-South cooperation that operates today. So why did we decide to put a text, and a full text, on only one of the three options now? And why did we not make reference 
to the fact that there will be no regulatory barriers between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. Indeed, as paragraph 50 of our joint report from December states. Those questions have clearly vexed observers in the UK, and some claim that in doing so, the EU has overreached to use one of the milder terms which were thrown at us when we published this text. There are three reasons, I think, why we have done what we have done. First is that the European Council of December clearly said that we should make progress on all the joint report commitments when discussing the future relationship, when progressing in the second phase, on, the, the frame, on defining the framework for the future relationship. So the European Council was explicit to say we need progress on how these joint commitments now translate into a legal text as and when we make progress on defining the future framework. Two, I think, second reason is negotiation time is of the essence. We have seven, eight months ahead of us to conclude the withdrawal agreement. It would have been complacent on our side to leave that backstop solution in our drawers and only come out with such a sensitive issue at the very last moment of the negotiations. Finally, and third reason, and most importantly, when we will conclude the withdrawal agreement in the autumn of 2018, it is unlikely that at that time there will be full clarity on the definitive solutions that the UK has insisted for the joint report on the future relationship between the UK and the EU, more generally solving the Irish issue, or on a specific solution that the UK has announced it is working on, and we look forward to receiving the operationalization of the ideas that the UK there may have. So if, when concluding the withdrawal agreement, in the absence of certainty on the other two options, we will need that fallback option in the withdrawal agreement. But it will only apply on the ground in the absence of other agreed solutions coming forward and being effective. And contrary to what some experts have claimed, the text of our protocol explicitly provides for the possibility of a solution to be found in the context of the future relationship between the EU and the UK, or of a specific solution proposed by the UK, and it says that should these be agreed, that the protocol will be superseded. So better proposals are welcome, as Donald Tusk has said, on the other two options, but perhaps also on the fallback option, and on better versions of that fallback option. Final word on that issue, how would it work in terms of the fallback option? We, from our side, with support from the 27 member states, with support from the European Parliament, have gone the extra mile and shown creativity. We say there should be full alignment between Northern Ireland and Ireland for union law on goods. That includes sanitary, phytosanitary standards, controls to avoid a hard border. And in combination with common customs rules, oversight and enforcement mechanism, the, proposal, the protocol proposes a common regulatory area between the Union and Northern Ireland. The solution somehow builds on what exists today. Northern Ireland has specific rules in many devolved areas. Plant health and animal disease rules are obvious examples. There is an all-island electricity market, so we have included the wholesale electricity market in our protocol. We have not included gas or renewables. Just to give an example to illustrate that we have limited this to those areas where we think should be focused on. And of course, we can also make the application of these common customs rules smart. 
and use technology, authorized economic operators and other devices, but technology needs to serve a system. Technology is there to implement a system. And in any case, if you only speak about a smart customs border, of course, you fail to tackle the second dimension, which is the alignment with regulatory matters on goods. Finally, as to the question of the famous paragraph 50, this deals with a UK internal process, should the backstop be activated. It gives the Northern Ireland Assembly, the Northern Ireland Executive, a say in any further steps in which, which the UK may wish to take internally. Clearly, it is not for the European Commission or for the European Union to include provisions on that particular aspect in a text of a withdrawal agreement between the EU and the UK. This is a UK internal process. So much for the withdrawal agreement. Let's talk briefly about transition. But out of respect for ongoing negotiations this week with my colleagues at technical level in Brussels, I will not elaborate all that much today on transition. We have a policy of full transparency. We put out hundreds of slides on ideas for the future relationship. We have published all our position papers. We have published all our position papers as we gave them to the 27. We have published all our position papers once the 27 had made comments and we transmitted them to the UK. But we must also find respect for the space that is needed for negotiations. So we have some kind of a deal that we do not talk about negotiations while they are going on. Let me just point out some important divergences very generally between where we stand today. Most notably is the idea of the UK having a role in rulemaking for new rules that would come online during the transition period. The position of the EU in a nutshell is the same market, it's the same rule. And that reflects the December European Council guidelines where member states said, yes, we are ready to offer a transition period to the UK, but we can only do so if all market players and member states play by the same rules during that transition period. On citizens' rights, the UK has asked for a different treatment of the people arriving during transition. That raises a question of principle and also a question of administrative capacity from the side of the UK to process that. And then there is the question of international agreements during transition. Brexit means that the UK falls out of 750 international agreements. During the transition period, EU international agreements, during the transition period, we can organize a system whereby the EU and the UK bilaterally decide that all the obligations of these agreements continue to apply to the UK throughout the transitional period. We can, however, not speak on behalf of third countries to extend the benefits of those agreements to the UK, and we are discussing in a very constructive and productive way right now how to take that issue forward. But clearly, the withdrawal agreement is between the EU and the UK and cannot speak on behalf of third countries with whom we have these international agreements. Final word on transition. We want to wrap this up quickly. The UK wants to wrap this up quickly. That means that we need to settle these divergences. But the certainty that there is a transitional period will only come when the withdrawal agreement is ratified. In other words, the certainty comes at the very end of the process, when Westminster and the European Parliament and the Council on the EU side ratify the withdrawal agreement with the UK. So it's a little bit like December joint report. You can conclude politically, 
but the legal text, of course, needs to be translated and then at the end of the process also ratified. If I turn, and if I still have time, to turn to the third issue that I would like to cover before concluding, is a few words on the future economic relationship, which was also the theme of the Prime Minister's speech last Friday. What is our goal? Our goal is to reach in October a political declaration on the framework for the future relationship between the EU and the UK that brings certainty on what that future relationship will look like. Today, as a negotiating team for the EU, we have not yet engaged with the UK on a discussion on the future relationship. We are a few weeks away from the March European Council. The December European Council asked the UK to provide some further clarity on the future. Now it's up to the European Council to adopt additional guidelines so that we then, between April and the autumn, can construct that political declaration which will be part of the final deal in the autumn of 2018. Subsequently, once the UK then has become a third country in April 2019, we will have to negotiate that future relationship. So it is also not my role to expand too much on this today. The work is being prepared by heads of state and government and President Tusk in terms of looking at the additional guidelines. Michel Barnier welcomed last Friday's speech and the provision of clarity by the Prime Minister that the UK confirmed its leaving the UK single market, and the customs union. And he welcomed the recognition in the speech of trade-offs, which should then inform the additional guidelines on a free trade agreement. Michel Barnier himself had given a speech on Thursday, actually, where he spoke also, not in the same words, but about some of the hard facts to which Prime Minister May also referred. He mentioned the trade-off between full sovereignty on the one hand, full autonomy of decision-making, and retaining the advantages of the single market. He spoke about the trade-off between having a comprehensive customs union with the EU or the UK having a fully independent trade policy. And he recognized the temptation to avoid making a choice politically and downplaying the cost of Brexit, or indeed to pretend that the UK could obtain a free trade deal with all the single market benefits in it. And the Prime Minister's speech is important in this context because she has recognized that Brexit means less obligations, but also less benefits for the UK's relationship in terms of market access to the European Union. And that is a very important point. She also confirmed the end of direct jurisdiction of the Court of Justice, that EU law will no longer apply in the UK, that there is an end to free movement of people, and state that the UK will have its independent trade policy. What I would like to do before concluding is make a couple of observations on what the single market is, moving on from these speeches and make a few more general remarks. Because having followed this process intensely, I think that there is still a lack of understanding in the public debate, I'm not speaking about other circles, in the public debate on what the single market is. It's a system that builds free flows of trade, free movement rights for individuals and businesses, integrated with joint rulemaking between the member states to adopt regulations and standards in the public interest and have joint enforcement. It's built on the four freedoms that everybody in the UK now knows, and it has the primacy of EU law. In other words, a national parliament cannot reject a European standard. European law overrides national law. 
Jacques Delors famously said that one cannot fall in love with a single market. But I think that many experts and academics specialized in trade or in the social market economy or in regulatory matters find a lot of beauty in this unique system, if I may say so. And I would like to expand on three of these features of beauty of the single market. And I do so in view of with the background ideas on mutual recognition of each other's standards with a third country or generalized equivalence of standards between the European Union and third countries. And the idea that some new independent oversight mechanism would then somehow outside of the institutional architecture of the single market have a role in that process. Three features I would like to single out. And the first feature is the capacity of the single market for adaptation. The Court of Justice issues jurisprudence that gives extra rights to individuals, extra rights to businesses to engage in cross-border trade, goods or services, capital movement. The legislators adapt to new challenges, so does the Commission with new proposals, and the regulatory agencies play their role in preparing new standards and authorizing new products for the 28 countries. And for some areas, it is mutual recognition of national rules in the EU. And such mutual recognition between the member states can be a source of regulatory innovation. It can be a source of competition between national jurisdictions, a source of learning between regulators. But the key is that the joint rulemaking system can kick in at any time and step up to the plate and say, here, mutual recognition no longer works. It leads to market failures. Or here, the absence of a harmonized approach undermines the welfare of the European Union. And that is exactly what has happened in the financial crisis. We have moved away from mutual recognition of national standards to a centralized approach with a single European Union rulebook, with common enforcement structures and strengthening single enforcement structures and single supervisory structures at European level to avoid the problem we had with mutual recognition between member states, which was regulatory arbitrage between different systems. So yes, there can be mutual recognition between the member states, but there's also the possibility to go for a different approach at all times. Secondly, an important change that has occurred over the last decade is the role of the European, is the role of the European Parliament in rulemaking for the single market and many other issues. And given the supremacy of EU law over national law, and given that member states in the Council can be outvoted with qualified majority, the role of the European Parliament is crucial in, its, in the decision-making structures of the EU and in the democratic quality of that decision-making structure. It is a place where European political parties do their work in terms of the state versus the economy, individual rights versus security measures, and so on which is, for instance, very important in the data protection field. Now, there was a time, if you allow me to indulge in what you referred to, my PhD period in the European Institute, when political scientists would describe in the early 90s, just after Maastricht, their preference to see the EU emerge as a regulatory state, where expertise would decide on rules. Now, since that time, the role of the European Parliament has changed fundamentally. But at the same time, what has also changed is the creation of regulatory agencies where expertise is located, technical knowledge, which brings also an element of 
neutral considerations into the decision-making process based on what experts think on risk assessments for certain products or certain processes. The work of these agencies is, of course, based on the EU treaties, which limits the delegation of powers to such agencies. And part of their work consists of preparing decisions that are taken by the European Commission. I think one can again illustrate how expertise on the one hand and democratically elected representatives interact with an example of the financial services. Because in that sector, there's a lot of international standard setting. The Financial Stability Board, IOSCO on securities and commodities and other obscure bodies that many people probably have never heard of. Or the European Banking Agency and the Securities and Market Agency, which also build up the technical expertise of what we do. But incorporating all of that expert work into EU law happens via a treaty-based process where checks and balances apply between the members of the Council and the European Parliament and directly elected MEPs. And the system also has a capacity to react to policy failures. After the so-called dieselgate, which broke out in the car industry, the European Parliament organized open inquiries, public opinion could follow what had happened, and the Commission made new proposals, and this resulted three months ago in a new system, new market surveillance affecting the car industry with new EU oversight and enforcement powers and providing guarantees for independence of type approval of cars, which is an issue that is also coming up in the context of the withdrawal of the UK. Thirdly and finally, the deepening of the single market has been accompanied by EU policies, by cohesion policy, by environmental policy, by different policies to say, here we need stronger common policies, just like President Juncker is now pushing for more social rights as part of the free movement agenda of the sing- of free movement principles rather of the single market. So I wanted to expand on these three features: the dynamic capacity to adapt, the democratic quality of decision making, and the common policies to put into context how the EU could analyze ideas of mutual recognition of standards or generalized systems of equivalence. And they also put into context those key principles that we always keep referring to, which is the autonomy of the union's decision-making, the integrity of the single market and how it works, which is basically the correct functioning, the indivisibility of the four freedoms of people, goods, services, and capital, and why these principles cannot be unpicked in the context of the withdrawal negotiations. At times in the UK, one listens to outside observers saying that this is rather dogmatic, it's institutional, it's perhaps legalistic. I hope that what I try to convey is that these principles are not about empty dogma, but about the fundamental foundations on which the policy-making system and the single market rests. But beyond that, I think there's also, from the business perspective, a strategic consideration to be taken into account. We keep hearing from EU businesses that the short-term cost of Brexit would never outweigh the longer-term cost of having the single market unravel. Shabani was in Copenhagen on Friday, met social partners, stakeholders, business, and I was struck by what one journalist tweeted, a Danish broadcast radio TV journalist. And I quote, he said that all Danish businesses are more concerned with keeping the integrity of the internal market than any loss of UK market access. I think it's worth repeating that more 
are concerned with keeping the integrity of the internal market than any loss of UK market access. So let me conclude with two remarks. The first one, the first one comes back to the point on flexibility and dogma and rigidity. Michel Barney has always said that there are different models on the table, that the EU is not excluding, that the EU has not asked the UK to leave the single market, that a comprehensive customs union can be discussed as long as it's compatible with our own WTO requirements. But the UK government has opted, and Theresa May has confirmed, that in the context of the particular balance of rights and obligations the UK wants to accept, that it wants to leave that. And we respect that. And we will therefore also negotiate accordingly. And my final closing remark is on how these negotiations are at times depicted in the media and how that is at odds with our mindset at the negotiation table. And I would think our joint mindset at the negotiation table, UK and EU negotiators. Because negotiations are about finding common ground. Negotiations are about finding where the mutual interest of both parties lies. Negotiations is not about crushing an opponent. Negotiations is about respecting an opponent, understanding, well, I shouldn't even use the word opponent, but respecting the other party and understanding the other party. <laughs> and so when we read sports metaphors of where the ball now is in terms of whose court, that sounds alien to how we work, and the same is true for poker game metaphors where people call on, let's call Barney's bluff, he has put so many slides on the table that I think you would be surprised that he has no extra cards. The slides are on the table, basically. And, so, and he has basically said, look, this is it, and, and we need to construct a model of rights and obligations based on, on how the EU, what the EU is and how it operates, basically. And so with the UK, I think we have managed to reach sufficient progress in December because we kind of insulated ourselves from that and focused on the substance of citizens' rights, financial settlement, Ireland, Northern Ireland. And our method of walking together step by step in full transparency has led to results, and we intend to continue applying that method for the months to come. And once we have the additional guidelines on the future, we will also apply that method to discussing the framework for the future relationship. And I think we're very much in line with this method, which what Prime Minister May said last Friday, and I quote... We will not be buffeted by the demands to talk tough or threaten a walkout. We will move forward by calm, patient discussion of each other's positions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed for that uh, overview, uh, Stefan. I wonder if I could pick up on one of the final comments you made. Uh, your phrase was that different models are on the table. Now, when we think of Theresa May's speech last Friday, she was making a, another argument again in terms of uh, a deal for the UK that might be unique, something different. And in the speech, she mentioned South Korea, Canada, Ukraine. We might also add uh, Switzerland to that. Her point was that the European Union has a vast array of different external agreements, and there isn't that much consistency between these cases. The conditions that South Korea has are different from Canada, from the Ukraine, uh, and then we come to something like 28 different agreements with uh, Switzerland. 
So different models are on the table. Why can't, the, why can't we uh, get to the point where the EU27 and the UK feel that it's in their mutual economic interest to have a different kind of agreement? Well, I think we have to... to sit close yeah. to I think it is certainly correct to say that every free trade agreement is tailored to the party you're negotiating with. And so the Prime Minister is right to say, you know, Canada and South Korea, she could have added the Japan trade deal. They are not the same. They cover, they have different scopes, they have different, different issues covered. And so that, that is just a normal process of negotiations where you, as I said in my concluding remarks, you try to find the mutual interest and, and the common ground. I think what we have been struggling with for the last period is ideas that somehow one could reproduce the single market benefits in some new mechanism, either sector by sector or through different kind of new mechanisms we could envisage. And therefore, I think it is very welcome that the Prime Minister said, look, the EU says there is always a balance of rights and obligations, and I recognize that, and she, and, and she expanded on that. And so said then also to the country, that will mean less market access to the European Union. So I think there, that's for me a, a very important aspect of, of what she said in the Mansion House speech. But, and so... To have a close partnership with the UK, absolutely. To have an ambitious free trade agreement, that's what we already put forward in the April guidelines. And then we will need to think through how that works, given the UK negotiation positions and given also what the Prime Minister has repeated in, in, in the speech last Friday. Because she said, we are not going to be part of the direct jurisdiction of the Court of Justice and EU law will not apply in the UK unless Parliament decides so. And you point to a number of models where not all of them, but some of the countries you mentioned, not the free trade deals, but the, some of the others, where there is an element of EU law or a substantive element that applies. And then, of course, when there is EU law, there is always a court of justice, somewhere ultimately, because there can only be one ultimate arbiter. So if you say, well, no, there will be two legal orders, which is what the speech also said, that the UK Parliament can reject EU rules at any time, even though after having closely aligned for some time, you automatically come to the model of the free trade agreement because you create two sovereign jurisdictions, two autonomous legal orders that somehow will need to interact through a free trade agreement, which, again, can be extremely ambitious. Okay, so we might have a distinct free trade agreement, but in being distinct, it's likely to have uh, perhaps uh, less ambition than the Prime Minister was, um, was seeking. Uh, one of the things that she mentioned in her speech was references to a customs union. And she, she might as well have, in that part of the speech, said, Dear Michelle, what about this offer, as it were? And the proposal she was coming up with was to say that there could be a customs union between the UK and the EU27, which would have uh, two aspects to it. That is, imports into the UK, which were intended for the European Union market, 
would be subject to the same taxes, tariffs, rules of origin, uh, provisions, etc., as the EU27 apply uh, to imports into their own markets. But those imports into the UK, which would be intended to remain within the UK market, the UK would be able to apply its own tariffs, its own rules of origin, uh, provisions, etc. That provision in terms of a customs union, the EU doesn't lose out. The same, tax, the same tariffs, the same rules are applied for imports which enter Britain but end up in Europe. Where's the, where's the problem? Is Michelle going to say thank you very much? First of all, you're asking me what Michelle will say, Michelle Barnier, on an issue which is first of all for Donald Tusk and the European Council to take forward. Right? So let's, let's keep the process in mind, which is how we got successfully to where we are today. So the, the first reaction in terms of additional guidelines on the future relationship needs to come from the European Council because our team negotiates on behalf of the 27. Now, you point out one of the two options that the Mansion House speech yes. developed, yes. because there was also another idea that was put on the table at the same time, which was customs facilitation, customs cooperation arrangements, which indeed the EU has with countries like Canada, with whom we have a free trade agreement, or countries like the United States, with whom we do not have a free trade agreement but we have a customs cooperation agreement post-9-11 in terms of security issues. So, to, you know, to, to favor ease of trade, so to say. It seems to me that in the model that you described more at length, which is one of the two that, that is in the speech, it would then also mean that EU ports would have to do the same for the UK. So it works both ways. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I wasn't expecting a comma. I was, no. I, I was expecting a comma, not a full stop. Um, I, I was expecting a comma what, myself, actually, okay. until the full stop generally came. Uh, <laughs> fine. Uh, the EU27 uh, do as you suggest. The UK does as Theresa May's first option suggested. Um, but, but, but surely key... since Friday, you might possibly have discussed this with um, Mr. Barney, Monsieur Barnier. Yes, but we need to respect the process uh, in terms of now it's up to the European Council to adopt the additional guidelines, and then we will sit down with the UK negotiators to talk through these things. Right. Uh, so there is an issue there of process that needs to be respected, I think. But certainly... If you talk about customs facilitation, customs cooperation arrangements, that can certainly be discussed. The idea that you have raised seems to me to merit more deepening in terms of its feasibility and its realism. Okay. Um, if the audience could just uh, look away, we may be about to establish a deal here. I think. <laughs> Do you have a curtain? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you touched a lot on Northern Ireland and you mentioned uh, the complexities of regulation within the single European market. And I appreciate the um, reference to the integrity of the single market uh, you mentioned. Um, one of the arguments that Theresa May mentioned and we hear so often in the UK media is that uh, the EU27 don't want a border in Ireland, London doesn't want a border, Belfast doesn't want a border. 
so where's the problem? And Theresa May mentioned on Friday that something like 80% of the trade between the north and south of the uh, island of Ireland is conducted by micro firms, SMEs, uh, etc., companies that don't have ambitions beyond the market of the island of Ireland. Mm. So why is the Irish border then uh, so much of a problem? Uh, it doesn't, in her words, seem to have a systematic significance, was her uh, phrase. Uh, so could, uh, couldn't there be a more flexible uh, approach? Um, on your first point, who is asking for a border? Well, Brexit is asking for a border. So Brexit, as, as the slogan goes, is taking back control also of borders. And so the problem on the island of Ireland is created by Brexit, which is why we have always said this is a responsibility for the UK to come up with a good solution for the problem that is created. And I think the EU feels invested in this. The peace process between, is, of course, a homegrown process. It's, it's a tribute to, to the political leaders and the community leaders in Northern Ireland. But the, UK, uh, the, the EU has tried to facilitate that, has supported that, and, of course, by definition, the EU is about erasing borders between us and between the member states. And so that has also facilitated, and that's why what I said in my introduction is important, that both parties recognize that the North-South cooperation, which is one of the strands under the Good Friday Agreement uh, with North-South ministerial councils, is embedded in EU policies and EU legal frameworks. We have financially invested in the peace process with the cohesion policy and, and the peace program. So that's one point. The second point is that since Brexit creates a border between the UK and the EU, of course, from the EU side, what is important is to maintain the correct functioning of the single market and the correct functioning of our customs union. That's important for us as a credible WTO partner, as a reliable trade partner, and it's important for the, the functioning of the EU. And if you say products that are in Ireland, well, they're not just in Ireland, they're in the single market, and they're in the customs union, and they can circulate freely because that's that's one of the successes of the single market is that that can happen. And we, of course, never would want to undo that, which is why the 27 are strongly united, both on finding the solution for Ireland, which is the right solution, and protecting the integrity of the single market. Now, you say, why can't we be flexible? I think we have been flexible. The fallback solution that we have operationalized is us showing some creativity in how we can solve that problem that is, again, created by Brexit. And I, I repeat myself there. So the idea that there will be a union customs code that is applying to the union as well as to Northern Ireland, to the European Union, and that Northern Ireland aligns on a number of on, on goods and on a number of other issues, but not on everything... <coughs> is also, from our side, using our creativity to find a solution for that problem. But again, as I said, if there is a solution to be found in the future relationship, or if the UK comes with specific solutions which the UK said it would work on, 
but which we haven't seen yet today, then we will, of course, engage with that. And if the UK has better ideas for the fallback option, we will obviously engage with that and negotiate that. But, um, and I think I cannot repeat enough that also in terms of elements of public debate and media have seen that this is really an issue that the 27 feel strongly invested in. Okay, okay. You mentioned uh, that the UK may be able to have uh, a particular type of uh, free trade agreement, but of course, from the British point of view, one of the crucial aspects is services, the services sector and particularly financial uh, services. You made the reference in your uh, presentation about the importance or the relevance of mutual recognition. Mm. Now, the Prime Minister was saying, via uh, the financial services, we're not looking for passporting rights. We mm. accept we're not on that uh, agenda. But can't we have a, uh, a system in which uh, we have regulatory regimes uh, which uh, achieve essentially the same outcome. Mm. Uh, if there were members of the audience uh, here from the City of London, are you saying, are you signalling, do you think, that uh, there could be a deal broadly on the principle of mutual recognition in terms of financial services? Again, what I can do today is kind of sketch what we have and what the challenges are in terms of Okay. Of, of, what that, of what that entails. And it is welcome that the Prime Minister said indeed that the passport is no longer there. It's just a logical consequence of leaving the single market. Passporting for... Maybe there are some people who are not from the city, so passporting is that your national supervisor recognizes you as fit for purpose for the whole of the single market, basically. And so you get a European passport to operate in that single market, and you get it from a, usually from a national regulator. So it, it, it makes doing business in that, in that sector incredibly easier, and, and it is certainly something that the EU is committed to deepening with the Capital Markets Union and the Banking Union, uh, the first one at 27, the second one for the moment at the Eurozone level, and, and then we'll see. So what has happened in free trade agreements is that the EU says, look, we are an open market, so of course you can always establish yourself in the EU as a British firm detained by British capital, and then you become a regulated entity inside of the EU single services market, and you're regulated by EU regulators. Then we have the regime of equivalence, which is the EU unilaterally declaring that a third country system, in this case would be the UK, Basically, the supervisory structure, the rules are stringent and up to, up to standards as they are. And so you could then declare equivalence. But that's always a decision that the EU needs to take. And if the situation changes in the third country in terms of deregulation, or those, then, then that equivalence can, can disappear. What you always, always have also, what you always have in free trade agreements is what is called a prudential carve-out, so that both parties, we have it with Canada, so Canada and the European Union can at all times intervene to maintain financial stability. And what you rarely have is that a service provider from a third country can branch out directly into the, into the single market for financial services. 
So, and if you have it, it's strongly conditioned, and it's always subject to this prudential carve-out. So compared to the single market, it, it really falls short in terms of business needs and, and, so, and the ease of doing business cross-border, basically. So this is where we stand, and it is not a coincidence, of course, that in my introductory remarks, I said, well, mutual recognition between member states is not always enough. So we have a single rule book, and the UK has been extremely helpful and constructive in developing that rule book, which is often indeed inspired by international standard-setting bodies and then goes through a democratic process on the EU side to be incorporated in EU law. Uh, and so that mutual recognition has failed. You know, at, there was a time that we thought this would lead to market efficiency, but with the financial crisis, we have gone for an approach of more harmonization and centralization and more EU bodies overseeing that and, and stronger powers for those bodies. So, and I think that's my final point on that. There was also some good work done here by think tanks in London who said, well, you also need to look at the systemic importance and how politicians look at this, because in the end, in the financial crisis, there was taxpayers' money put, on, put there. Yeah. So if you are in a very integrated market with a third country, but you don't have the joint enforcement structures, then you can see the potential for all kinds of difficult situations, if I put a euphemism there, in, the, in what could happen. So... Okay, thanks. My final question is a LSE uh, question. <laughs> um, students, researchers, uh, would look forward to uh, being continuing to be able to be uh, part of uh, a European research area, Erasmus, student exchanges, uh, etc. Do you think it's right for us to feel that that kind of issue would be um, one of the easiest things for uh, the UK and the 27 to, uh, to agree on. Mm. Uh, to put it perhaps more precisely, would the European Union of 27 really wish to cut themselves off from the London School of Economics? <laughs> <laughs> if you ask me to make a prediction on how easy things would be to negotiate, I will not do that. Because if you had asked me in July what would be the most easy thing to negotiate of the three priority issues, I would have been wrong. So okay. I will not engage in predicting what is easier or not. But in terms of the fundamental underlying issue of your question, we can't get around the fact that the UK will be a third country and no longer a member. And so... And how then exactly the university cooperation will work is an open question today. What you could imagine could happen is that EU legislation foresees third country participation like it does now. It, yes. There's some countries now, exactly, or Norway uh, or Israel that participate in some or all um, of the European research area. Uh, and so that then, of course, would be subject to a financial contribution from the UK to cover the cost of what the UK, of the cost that the UK ha brings, basically, but also to make sure the system functions. It would have to be on a different legal basis compared to today. So I cannot really say exactly how it will look like, and hopefully we will 
have a transitional period, so we have some time to sort it out by January 2021. But it doesn't seem to be an issue of horrendous complexity, but I cannot, it would be imprudent from me to reassure you too much. Though, okay. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I've noticed you said it's not horrendous comple- horrendously <laughs> complex, and that's fine. <laughs> okay, so let's uh, open it up to uh, questions from the audience. We're going to take uh, two or three together, if that's okay. Yes, because, sure. Um, there's a dinner afterwards, and we're going to make you earn your LSE dinner. Um, can we take the gentleman who's uh, particularly prominent at the back here? Uh, if you could make the, wait for the microphone and just say who you are, please. Okay. I'm uh, Michael Burns. I work in artificial intelligence. Um, let's say, highly theoretically, if you want, that this UK government would be uh, collapsing. Would you give them more time to negotiate or ask in a different way what would be the circumstances under which you would push out the March next year date? Okay, good. Thanks. Others, please. Uh, anyone? Could we take the uh, lady here, about three rows back, please? Thank you very much. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for the very interesting uh, remarks. Uh, I wanted to touch upon something you mentioned about the financial services. I'm, I'm here up. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, so, um, so I think financial services sector is quite particular in the sense that it's already uh, interconnected, not only between the UK and the EU, but also between the EU, UK and the US. Uh, this is a, a sector that does not really know borders. You don't have to transport anything. So my question would be, uh, wouldn't that be a good, uh, good moment to start thinking about how we could make this, uh, this regulation uh, open, open up the uh, regulatory uh, standards t- uh, outside, the, outside of the, the EU to include the UK and potentially other third countries? Uh, what role would... Um, agencies such as IOSCO could, could play in such, uh, in such uh, an arrangement. And uh, if you could share any more thoughts with regards to how the financial services sector could function post-Brexit, that would be much appreciated. Okay, thank you. Can we take the gentleman in the very centre here, please? No, no, we need it uh, recorded. Thank you. Uh, Matthew Holhurst from MLEX. Um, I'd, I'd like to build on that, on that previous question, actually. In the, as you mentioned in your, in your talk, Stefan, that the EU has a system of engaging with third countries in terms of things like equivalence. Uh, as the years go on beyond, beyond Brexit, how do you think the UK's role outside the single market is, is actually going to force the EU to think about its system of third country equivalences and things like data, I think you're doing something in gas, and actually working out whether that could be a way for the UK and other countries in future to, to plug into the EU as, as you sort of revise your own rule book. Okay, we'll have another round of questions, but um, perhaps the... Well, the first question was, uh, if the government was to collapse, uh, might Brussels give us more time to negotiate our future? Um, Without engaging in the UK domestic question, it's it's hard for me to say what will happen in March 2019. What I can say for a fact today is that there is certainly no appetite to extend that period of two years. So the UK will become a non-member end of March 2019, a couple of months before the European elections. 
if a future UK government was to uh, say we'd like to um, rescind uh, Article 50, what might be the response? What the response might be, I can't, that's really for the European Council, what you can say in terms of the process, it's a collective response. It, it's, would, it's not a unilateral move that the UK can make. Yeah. So that is also part of the logic of Article 50. Now, on the broader question on the, on the financial services, when the financial crisis broke out, it was just when the transition in the US, Bush-Obama, that was the, that time, the G20, also Gordon Brown here in this country was then prime minister, gave a big boost to the G20, the cooperation, the idea of convergence, of standards, and that, and, and that you would work with that. I'm not sure if that momentum is still there today. I, I, I just do not know. Uh, you can see a couple of things that are happening in the OS with the Dodd-Frank Act, which, uh, but I leave that for you to, to draw your own conclusions from that. Um, what is important and what will remain important is that the EU needs to maintain its autonomy of decision-making in the context of UK's withdrawal and also more generally. So yes, there are international standard-setting bodies and we as EU work hard in there to try and have global standards emerge, but the way this then works in the European jurisdiction, so to say, or in the European Union as a, as a single market, is of course a decision that the EU legislators need to take. It's not a decision international experts can take for the EU. And there's always a political considerations that come in there. And so one has to also think about the role of the European Parliament in this context of ideas that global experts would set global standards. Uh, the financial services post-Brexit, it's hard to predict, but I, what you have and what I referred to earlier is a drive on the EU side to deepen the capital markets union and to deepen the banking union, partly in the context of deepening the economic and monetary union. And that drive will certainly, certainly continue. And to, to Matthew's question on, uh, on equivalence, we already have done what you suggested, should we rethink equivalence? Because in the clearinghouses, so the market infrastructure regulation, the Commission has put a proposal on the table, and the Council and Parliament are now discussing that, to say, basically, if we give equivalence to a jurisdiction that concentrates a huge amount of clearing in terms of euro derivatives, we need to look at that carefully with vigilance in terms of our financial stability. We need, perhaps, to think about extraterritorial supervisory powers or also relocation powers. And so, and that is now being discussed in, in Council and Parliament. So that's an example of how we are thinking about equivalence in the context of the UK's withdrawal. Okay, good. Let's have another round of questions. Could we take the lady um, about three rows from the back in the red here, please? Uh, my name is Eleni Kerr. I'm from Research Fortnight. That's a magazine. Um, I just wanted to ask, because you touched a little bit about, upon EU agencies and regulation through them, what do you think about the, EU's, uh, sorry, the UK's, well, Theresa May's uh, statement that she wants the UK to be part of agencies like the EMA and the European Chemicals Authority? Is that something that's possible? And what would that entail? Thanks. Okay, good. Thank you. Uh, other questions? Could we take the gentleman here in the blue? 
Yes. Uh, I wanted to ask about your uh, your inclusion of the fallback option in in the draft withdrawal bill. Uh, if if you could foresee, if you could have foreseen uh, solutions for option A and B, would you have included them? I, is is the reason you didn't include them because you don't think they exist? Thank you. And the lady at the very back. Um. I wanted to ask about um, while you are going through the process of negotiations so far, because it's already been you know a few months. What surprised you the most, which you were not expecting? <laughs> if you could keep the answer to the last question fairly brief, please. <laughs> <laughs> Let me think about it while I'll answer the first two. <laughs> so on the. The question on the regulatory agencies. Um, so the, some of them were singled out, the European Chemicals Agency, the European Medicines Agency, the European Food Safety Agency. Uh, again, I, at the risk of being a little bit boring, I will again put a caveat in my reply first, because, again, all these issues there, of course, the Mansion House speech is about ideas for the future relationship, and we need to give space to the European Council and to process that and, and to look at that. So what I can do in, in reply to your question is, again, like I did for the financial services, describe a few challenges and, and tensions that, that, that you can find there. So, so one thing to understand very well about these agencies, of course, is that they, part of their role is to prepare decisions that the European Commission takes. Because under the treaty rules and jurisprudence, you cannot delegate excessive powers to such agencies. That the actual decision-making needs to remain part of the democratic process of how the European institutions work. So that's a, a first very important remark. Of course, these agencies also operate in a context where the single market principles operate. So they work based on legislation, based on commission work, and their work is integrated into that so-called acquis, which is why so far only three countries participate in these agencies without having a voice in the decision-making, and that's Norway, Liechtenstein, and Iceland, which are the three countries that adopt the full single market acquis. Switzerland, which adopts the regulatory acquis in terms of Pharmaceuticals, for instance, does not participate in the medicines agency. So that's the reality, the lay of, of the land today. I would also mention that what these agencies do is technical risk assessments, preparing also commission decisions, but it can become highly political when you start talking about a certain pesticide or a certain chemical, when you talk about the safety of medical products. So there is also a political dimension, not to their work, but it is embedded in a political sphere where, again, as I said in my introductory remarks, Parliament, Council need to play their role. So basically this is where we stand today. And the other thing I can say about agencies is that we are currently in the context of preparedness, looking at so-called rapporteurships and lead authorities in the context of the work of these agencies, because they work by appointing rapporteurs, experts from member states, and so on, is to 
make it Brexit-proof, so to say, make sure that the agencies can continue, there's no disruption in their work because of the UK's withdrawal. So in that sense, what is happening now in these agencies is contingency planning for the UK no longer being in part of, of their work, basically, after, after Brexit. Uh, on the fallback, so we're going back to Ireland, Northern Ireland. Um, I think your question was, did you do this now because you do not think options A and B exist? They do not exist today. So the way the UK designs now its future relationship outside of a customs union, outside of the single market, means in view of the single market integrity and the customs union integrity, means that there is a border. So in that context, that option doesn't exist today. Option B, as I said in my earlier remarks and answer to your question, we are waiting for proposals that would come from the UK authorities on that. So I personally am not directly involved, so I'm not sure what is exactly being thought about, and we don't have any proposal for sure today. You hear a lot in this discussion more generally about technology and making borders smart, and all of that can be done, technology and trusted trader schemes and pre-registration and uh, checks not at the border but somewhere else in terms of the border check, so to say, uh, when it leaves a company. Uh, so you can have all that, but that doesn't take away the need to have a coherent system in place. In terms of customs duties, in terms of rules of origin of products from third countries coming into the markets, into two separate markets, and so all of that you need to, and in terms of the alignment of standards. And again, for me, it's, the animal disease and the plant health rules are very striking because it is an island, it's geographically it is integrated, and there, there are separate rules in those particular fields. So we need to think about building on that rules. Try to give a long answer because I don't have a surprise yet. Been plain sailing. Well, uh, no, at, um, when we started, our initial idea was to say we'll start discussing the future in October. So, on record, also for having said that. So, that was basically in October 2016 when our task force was set up and, and, and got off to. So what has surprised many is the unity of the EU. Has it surprised us? No, but it is surprising. <laughs> We're not always thinking about the European Union in terms of unity, in terms of what has happened with different crises over the last years. But what one needs to understand is that when a country says we are leaving and now we need to negotiate a withdrawal, that the 27 naturally somehow come together to say, well, then we need to make sure that withdrawal happens orderly. And people have been speculating on the breakdown of that unity, but I don't see any signs of that. It has been extremely strong during phase one. We will see over the next months, but it has been extremely strong also in terms of starting to discuss the future and the parameters of the future relationship because you, we base it on who we are as a 
political system, as a policy-making system, and we have different models, so we are, in a sense, flexible in terms of offering these models, but we're not flexible in terms of the integrity of the models, which all have their own balance of rights and obligations. The unity has been very strong on Ireland. And so on all that, I think that is, it is surprising how we then work with our colleagues in the Parliament, Commission and Council for, let's say, institutional, nerdy Brussels observers. It's, it's quite unique in a way in terms of the information sharing and the relationship that is extremely collaborative between the institutions. Because we have a habit of, you know, commission makes a proposal and then, and then we go off and the institutions, you know, the council tries to pull this or push that and, and so on. And here, and I finish with that remark, I think it would be very unwise to try to break down that unity. And the Prime Minister's statements in support of that unity are very important, I think. She has said it several times, I believe, that it's also in the UK's interest that that unity is maintained, and I think it honestly is, because for the, the good functioning of the negotiation process, it's probably very helpful. But the classic way in which you would want to undermine, let's say, the Commission by creating an alliance of member states against something the Commission wants doesn't work in this particular case. Because the Commission doesn't have a proposal. We're negotiating on behalf of 27. And we're negotiating based on the fundamental principles of the EU. Thank you. Another round of uh, questions. Uh, Ian, here, please. Thanks. Ian Baker, European Institute, LSE. Stefan. We know that in May, the unity of the EU27 is going to start to be tested by the next round of multiannual financial framework negotiations. They're never easy. They're going to be harder still because the UK net contribution will be lost. Is the divorce bill a way to prevent the EU from fragmenting on this particular issue? Thank you. Other questions? Could we take the gentleman at the front here, please? I want to ask a question. The uh, Article 50 has been valid since 2009. It is crystal clear you notify, negotiate, and decide. How is it you're still letting people who decide and then negotiate? Because if you had Bulgaria deciding to leave the European Union and then came seven months later to send a letter to Article 50, and then two years after that they would say what our conditions are, would you have been negotiating with them as well? Okay. Um, other question. Could we take the gentleman uh, here, please? Yes. Uh, hello, Richard Allen. Uh, we hear a lot about the land border with Northern Ireland. Ireland There's another land border which I've not heard any mention of recently between Gibraltar and Spain. Is the Brussels agreement from the early 80s, is, will that still apply? Or is Will the framework that you're aiming to put together in October um, how, include specific rights across the Gibraltar-Spain border? Thank you. And uh, Chris Mason here, please, in the set, very centre. Uh, 
Thank you. Chris Mason from BBC News. Do you worry about the prospect of no deal? Okay. <laughs> the question was so short, I could hardly write it down before you finished, but thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, over to you. Yes. Uh, Unity, new EU budget. Uh, the divorce bill was, yeah. was the first question. In the future MFF, I leave to my colleagues in terms of ideas on future own resources and expenditure, and all those ideas are, are currently being discussed in Brussels, and the responsibility of Commissioner Oettinger. But in terms of the divorce bill, we have always said that this is about the UK respecting its obligations, as well as the EU, obviously. And so we have gone through various stages. I'm sure someone like you, Ian, have followed this very closely. And we ended up in a financial settlement which satisfied both parties because we basically we both signed up to the joint commitments of the, the December report. But the point was always for us not to say, you know, there is a, a Brexit bill or there is a divorce bill as such. It's basically from the viewpoint of, okay, you, you're a law-abiding country, you have your international commitments, you have your European commitments, and we need to honor them. And the end result is that we, both sides, of course, honor their obligations, which also means that in this country, LSE will continue being a beneficiary of EU funding, I hope, and, and, and I hope you have EU funding, I mean. I, but if you have EU funding, that will continue until the end of the financial settlement and the end of the transition period, which, uh, which, which coincides. So it also means that farmers, regions in the UK, university, research labs, uh, all the beneficiary of the EU budget, infrastructure projects will continue during, uh, up until the end of 2020 and beyond because we, we have the famous resta liquide, the outstanding commitments which then are spent beyond the 2020. But no, for us it was always about you know, the law is there, the obligations are there and we need to honor them and if not, we are not willing to discuss a future relationship. Uh, and that was very clear in, in the sequencing. Um, the question on other member states, I would basically answer that I hope, and we all hope, that the UK is a unique case. So I'm not going to start speculating on other member states wanting to leave the EU. I don't see any appetite for that. Um, so in, in response to your question, I mean, we... We had nine months first where, since the referendum, we had nine months without a letter of notification. So the letter came in March 2017, and that automatically sets the date of exit, with or without a deal, end of March uh, 2019. So, so that is basically a treaty-defined process. And maybe before coming to your question, then, since I'm on the no deal, um, No, we, we are working towards a deal. And if, if you look at the Mansion House speech, it is very clear that the Prime Minister has called on patience, step by step, listening to each other's positions, making progress. Clearly, Brexit has a cost for both of us, UK and EU. And in a no-deal scenario, that cost is, is higher. It's the highest from all the scenarios possible in terms of the economic costs. I also would think in terms of 
political costs. So, so, and I think the no deal scenario, there was a lot of talk about it, let's say a year ago, where we are now, given that we have this joint report, we have now a text of the withdrawal agreement which we have put on the table. Uh, around 200 articles, I believe, so we can now discuss them one by one, first with member states, soon with the UK. The transition period, politically, we could wrap it up if we find a way to overcome the UK's concerns, uh, or if the UK finds a way to overcome its concerns in some cases, I would say. Because um, it's the UK that has asked for that transition period. Uh, let's not forget that from, it, is because, it is a third country, it's no longer a member state, and the EU is offering all the benefits of the single market and the customs union to the UK. Uh, for the transition period. I think it, you cannot underestimate that, and I repeat what I said, it's, a, it's no longer a member state, and still the EU is willing to offer all the benefits of the single market and the customs union. So that is, of course, the transition is also in our interest. I mean, somebody mentioned earlier about interconnections. I mean, the supply chains are the ones with, you know, investment, some costs, and so on, and those are more difficult to move than the computers of the financial services, right? So, so it is also in our interest to make sure that there is time for adaptation, and it's in our interest because we will need the time to negotiate. And then I come back to your question of, on the no deal, because we will need the time of the transition to negotiate a future relationship. We are working towards a political declaration in October that should be sufficiently clear to give the EU27 leaders, European Parliament, clarity on the future relationship, but it still will need to be negotiated. And, and so it brings us two more years before the end of the transition period uh, to negotiate on that future relationship. Um, and then to come to Gibraltar, what we've done so far is we have done one thing already on Gibraltar, is protecting the frontier workers in terms of their rights, and that's part of phase one. So let's not forget that. Uh, people crossing the border, working in, in Gibraltar, we're living in Spain, vice versa. But clearly, our negotiating directive states that there needs to be a bilateral UK-EU, um, sorry, Spain-UK negotiations on Gibraltar. And that is basically what, we, what is happening now. Okay, I think we are out of time, but can you please join me in thanking Dr. Stefan Dirich.